Love that song. If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Well, we gather this morning in light of John's first letter, knowing that we live in a world that is in the power of a crayon. All right. Uh, We live in a world that's in the power of the evil one. There's a sinister reality this morning that many will gather and many will stand in pulpits much like this one to speak in the name of God, but they will not speak His Word. They will use the pulpit that God has afforded, but they will not herald the words that God has spoken. And in this, we find that the world is really just as it has always been in spiritual darkness. The shadows may be cast differently from generation to generation, but the spiritual lethargy and darkness of this world have been the same for thousands of years. In fact, we find this reality in Jeremiah chapter 23. Beginning in verse 23, hear these words. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall their lies be heard of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream. The Lord is being somewhat, I think, sarcastic there and saying, if they have a dream, let them tell it. But what will that dream produce? Then he goes on to say, but let him who has heard my word speak my word faithfully. What has a straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. And therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets who declare, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. I have to ask ourselves the question this morning, why do people love theological fads? Why do people love dreams? And the answer to that is found in this text. Because theological fads and dreams never break us of our sin. God's Word, on the other hand, is like fire. It's like a hammer that crushes us and brings us low. What is more like a hammer than for the nominal American Gospel to be confronted with this reality? The reality of what John is speaking here. That true conversion is not found in political parties, social movements, or moral rallies. 
True conversion issues out, as we learned last week, in lives proved by love for the church, by keeping the commandments of God, by loving theology, and by loving God Himself. And all of these things have to be taken together. We have to hear John this morning, not as some old man who just is blabbering on his own dreams, but we have to hear John, an old man who loves the church, who keeps the commands of God, who loves God and is deeply theological. We have to hear him, not as one, again, speaking in, in dreams, but speaking the word that God has faithfully given to him. He is writing for our joy, after all. He's writing that we can have joy in the midst of a difficult world, a dark world. Friends, in light of Jeremiah 23 and 1 John and what it means to be part of the body of Christ and not just give way to all of the, the, the theological shallowness in our day, I want to remind you that you have a holy calling. Some people look at the the pulpit and the pastorate as something holy. But I believe that part of what we learn in 1 John as a whole is that we are all together in this. And that preaching and proclaiming the Gospel is important. But it's the calling of the whole church to make sure that the Gospel is being proclaimed with faithfulness. That we are not delivering to our generation mere man-centered dreams but that the Word of God is proclaimed. Your responsibility, your calling is to reject men who speak in His name but speak not His Word. That's a weighty reality. So in light of that, would you honor His Word by standing to receive it yet another Sunday? As we begin in verse 1 of chapter 5, John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And here are our two verses today. For everyone who has been born out of God... Be overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of almighty God this is God's word to you and I today beloved would you pray with me father God we come into your presence asking that you would grant that as we contemplate the mysteries of your word and all of your heavenly wisdom that we would ever keep Your glory before our eyes, and that we would not be satisfied with merely being made to feel good about ourselves, but that we would be encouraged increasingly to commune with You. To live lives in a dark, sinful world not of religious fads, traditions, and foolishness, but to live our lives on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, might you meet with us today and write these truths on all of our hearts. And until we stand before you, might you make them a reality by the working of your Spirit. 
make them a reality by the working of your Spirit in all of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Now we have to remember the background. John has given us the view of how to test our Christian life. He's given us this view of how to test the Christian life as a whole. That we should consider, do we really love God? But when we ask that question, we don't just answer the question, do we love God? We have to go on and ask these questions. Do we love the church? Do we have a love for right teaching? Do we actually test the spirits? Do we cherish? Do we hold on to the commandments of God? When we come to the law of the Lord, do we find fault in it? Or do we come to the Word of God and to all of the imperatives of Scripture and do we say yes and amen? Now, of course, we don't look for salvation in the law of the Lord. We don't look to gain entrance into heaven by completing the law in our own strength. But once we are in Christ, once we come to an understanding of the Gospel that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, when we come to Christ and behold that He is the only one that could redeem our dead and dying souls, once we come to that point, then we look at the law of the Lord and we say it is perfect. It is good. It is right. This is what a loving God does for His people and this law is not burdensome. He elaborates on this reality of the law not being a burden by going on then into verses 4 and 5. We can't read verses 4 and 5 about overcoming. And this is what I think a lot of moderns would do with these verses. You can overcome any difficulty in your life. You can overcome all of the Political parties. You can overcome that difficult boss. Now I think there may be some application in this text as we work through. I think you can work that out in application in your own heart and life. But this isn't about you overcoming the things in the world that don't please you in a fleshly sense. That's not what this is about. It's about the reality that John has just laid before us that those who truly belong to Christ, who have truly been born again, are going to be people who come to the law of the Lord and they don't go, ooh. They don't go, yuck. They don't go, man, that is so heavy-handed and harsh. People who have been truly born again are not individuals who ignore the law. In fact, he, he, he says they are people who don't find it burdensome. And then he goes on into verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. The reason that the commands are not burdensome is because we have overcome the world. John introduces the theme of further keeping the commands of God in the Christian life. And this is an often debated point. What, what, what role does the, does the law have in the Christian life? Now, to answer this question wisely and rightly, we have to lay down our conceptions. We have to fire our inner defense team. You know, that little thing inside of you that when you come against a commandment of God, you try to give yourselves an excuse for it or explain away the command. Christians should not live lives like that. They should come to the Word of God and to the commands of God and they should say, yes, this is true and right. Now, how do I apply it? 
And not, again, looking to the law for salvation. That's not my argument. But, but how do we relate to the law if we are born again? Now again, this debate has raged in the church for centuries. And as I dealt with this, I can promise you this, if I was not an expositional preacher forced by your expectation that I've developed in this body to deal with the next text, I would say, "Eh, let's go on to verse 6. Because dealing with this particular struggle is always fraught with error. And none of us are perfect in the way we approach the law. We all need grace. The question is, as we come to the reality of the law, do we come and, and live in such a scrupulous way of seeking to keep the commandments, thinking that, man, if I mess up one of these, God's not going to love me anymore. I find that in the body of Christ all the time. But friends, in living a kind of life that is looking to the law for life ultimately leads us to legalism. It leads us to thinking that we in our own strength can please God when we need to rest in the reality that Christ and Christ alone is the one who has pleased the Father. He is the only one who can complete all of the law. But we don't just go, okay, then we can ignore it. You see, it's possible to become so consumed with the law that we lose the Gospel. And and if you want a good argument for that biblically, I won't give you verses. I'll give you entire books. That's what the, the letter to the church at Galatia was written about. Oh, you foolish Galatians. You're going back to the Old Testament law and, and heaping this on. It's Christ plus and whatever the law is. You also, I think, could make that argument from Romans or Hebrews. There is this push back against, from Paul's writing, living in a way where we look for salvation, for justification in the law. Friends, it's not there. The law is our schoolmaster. It teaches us who we really are. And it drives us, if we are born again by the Spirit of God, it drives us in the direction of Christ. So then the question becomes, again, how do we relate to the Gospel once we're in Christ? Knowing that we can't earn salvation by the law, do we just say, well, I'm saved by grace. I can do whatever I want. Well, Romans chapter 6 answers that question. Should I continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. No, that would be antinomianism. That would be against the law. That would be lawless living. And yet we find that... Friends, here's the, the, the fact. We have had a generation for the past hundred years that I think often slid into legalism. And so do you know what we do in response to that? Well, we balance ourselves out rightly and we live the way we should. Not... Uh, the pendulum swings the other way. And I think for every legal, one legalist you can genuinely find in the church today, you'll find ten antinomians, ten people that just say, what difference does it make? We're saved by grace. But that's not the argument that's found here. That's not what John is giving to us this morning. Friends, do we so easily forget how loving God is in giving the law? Now think about it. Now you go to Deuteronomy or to the Levitical system and the problem that we all have is we disconnect from the context of when this is written and and all of the reality of the world around the the, the nation of Israel and we go, oh my gosh, this is boring stuff. I mean, think, think about this. Somebody this week told one of my friends that the abortion issue is not about life for children. 
It's a privacy issue. That is a public declaration of stupidity. And if we look, now we're consumed as Americans, aren't we, with the whole reality of our privacy being guarded in the, in the legal code, aren't we? But if we go to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, do you know how many chapters God dedicates to our personal privacy? Zero. In fact, what we find in the law is this kind of communal reality that every aspect of our life is accounted for in the law. Some of the most mundane details about the bodily functions that we have in those Old Testament Levitical system and in Deuteronomy are spoken to. I mean, you would have some trial lawyer, some, some case law professional stand up today and say, whoa, 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 God's kind of trampling on our privacy rights here. But we have to remember, God has imprinted His image into our lives. Each one of us bear the image of God. And so every nation, regardless of whether it is God-believing or God-hating, whether it is born again in the sense of a vast majority or great percentage of the population is Christian or not, they will have a legal code. Every society has some form of this is what justice looks like. Now this is what we have to remember about God writing all of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and every other word of, and every other imperative in His Word. And it's this, that God loves us enough not to take a popularity vote about what's right in our lives. He doesn't ask our opinion about what is good for us. He, he, when he comes to his people, this fledgling nation of Israel, he doesn't say, well, I'm going to look to all of your neighbors and see what they're up to and maybe kind of morph some of their laws together. No, he makes sure that his people are distinct and different from the rest of the earth. And yet in the church today, the second that the law is spoken of, it's almost as if this was not something God had given from His goodness and His faithfulness and His love. Friends, if God says it and you don't like it, you need to remember you are questioning the faithfulness, the goodness, and the love of God. Now again, there's a wrong way to hold and to view the law. There are people who think that if we just reconstruct all of the Old Testament Levitical law and all of the laws laid out in Deuteronomy, that we would flourish again as people. I don't think so. That's not a reality. Some of the civil law and some of the ceremonial law would be misunderstood to just try and reenact all of it. And that's a whole other conversation and argument about theonomy that I'm not going to get into today because I think it would bore most of you. But the, the typical two realities are, are we falling into lawlessness or are we looking to the law for our salvation and both of them miss the reality of what God has done in giving the law. Friends, I think we should settle this morning as a church that it is a complete error to say that the Christian has no relationship to the law. I think that is an absolute falsehood. 
The law stands this morning. And somebody says, no, I'm free in Christ. Really? Are you free to murder your wife? Are you free to commit adultery? Are you free to do whatever you please? No, there are moral implications to the law that are still binding upon our conscience. And when we come to those things, how many Christian men this morning want to stand up and say that when the Bible says that we should not commit adultery, we think that's a bad law that should be abrogated? If you have the audacity to do that and your wife's sitting next to you, just do that this morning. Be honest with all of us. Now, do we think we gain salvation by not committing adultery? No, because we all realize that in our hearts we're guilty of the sin of infidelity. Well, I'm not going to get a bunch of amens on this one today, I can tell you. <laughs> Friends, the reality is when we come to the law, we're not there seeking salvation because we found that only in Christ. He is the faithful one. He is the one who has completed the law from start to finish. That is our great joy. But then being born again in this reality that John has laid before us, that Christ is in us and we are in Christ, are we then going to say, now none of that law matters? Are you kidding me? He lived perfectly under the law for our salvation. Now that we are in Him, we shouldn't say, well, who cares about the law? We should believe that we are more than conquerors when it comes to the law. That all of the law has been fulfilled in Him, and we are in Him, and so we may rejoice. John has been saying we don't find these things burdensome. We find them an encouragement. They're an instruction. We guard them. We love them. We cherish them. And this is not what it means to cherish the Word and the law of God. To hold on to a list of morality that we think outside of what God has actually spoken into His Word and then judge everybody else in the church accordingly. That's not to cherish the Word of God. So much damage is done to the church of God by adding to the law of God. Making moral platitudes and shoving them down the throats of people when we're not God. Again, God has spoken. God is the one who ultimately has spoken His law and we must live under it, not under the dictates of our own minds. The Ten Commandments again, and I, the imperatives of Scripture are God's kindness to us to reveal to us who we really are and to call us to repentance and we yes we've all transgressed them so what john is doing in a very practical way is he's showing us the difference between a christian and someone who is not you see we proclaim who we really are if we really are a christian by how we respond when we hear the law Non-Christians look at the law and they say it's foolish. This is arcane. This is burdensome. This is grievous. God is unjust if He actually did write this. I heard an atheist say this week that atheism is not the belief in, unbelief in God. Atheism is saying that God is not guilty of existing. And his implication in what he was saying in God not be, being guilty of existing is that the God of this Bible is unjust. 
That's absolute nonsense, isn't it? Total rabbit trail. But the reality is, what John is picturing here is that the non-Christian looks at the law as foolish, burdensome, grievous. The religious, non-converted, phony Christian will often come to the law and do one of two things. They'll either abrogate it completely and ignore all of its, its moral imperative, or they will, they will build up a legalistic system that is outside of what God has spoken, but not the Christian. The Christian comes to the commandments of, the, uh, of God and they, they say, these aren't burdensome. This is what I want to be. It's not what I am now. It's not how I live my life every day. I know at the heart level I'm guilty of all of these things and if salvation were to be accomplished through this law, I would have no hope. But this law in and of itself is good. It is right. So the test is, what is our attitude toward the commandments of of God? Do we come to them and feel that they're burdensome? Do we feel like we're being forced to live a life that we don't want to live? Do we feel like we have to keep all of this again together because if we don't, God won't love us? Or do you come to the law of God and do you say, God, I want to be like this. I want to live in a way that I love you and I show that love in the way I respond to what you have decreed in your word. And I pray that I grow in all of these areas. I pray that you would work in me by the power of your spirit to conform me into the image of Christ that I would actually obey your will in these things. And there's a part of the heart of the Christian that says, actually, one day I know I will live in accordance with all of this. It just won't be in this life. When I stand in glory, I will not sin against this law anymore. What a joy that will be. You see, what we need to see then is this reality of where this grievousness comes from. Where is it that the burden of the law really comes from. John tells us in the connecting of verses 3 and 4, the end of verse 3, and His commandments are not burdensome. To the Christian, they're not burdensome. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Friends, the reality this morning is the only thing that makes the commands of God in your life a burden is the whole system of the world. The the thing that causes you to against anything that God would say has to be from the world. And so we have to define, well, what is the world? John has already given us, I think, a great definition of the world in the second chapter of his letter. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desire, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, there's this reality in the Bible all throughout the pages of Scripture, that to live the Christian life means to live in the, in the hottest parts of a spiritual battle. 
That to be a Christian is not merely to be a moral person who keeps a list of rules. To be a, a Christian means you are following the great victor of a spiritual battle and the world will be against you. You see, there's this kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness and there is a battle every day and we've heard about that in Ephesians chapter 6 as Paul writes, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. There is a spiritual fight going on in the world around us. I, 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 this world is in the power of the evil one. And ultimately, this world, this evil kingdom, the world that is being spoken of here in verse 4, is everything that is opposed to the submission of, of all things under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The world is typified in the Bible from start to finish by a system that is opposed to God. That comes to God's decrees and the, the, the world bows up and says, we're not going to live that way. We are self-sovereign. We can live however we please. But friends, the reality is, every person who breathes air this morning has been created to bring glory to God. The question is, will you bring glory to God by God graciously saving you in such a way that you increasingly submit your life to Christ? Or will you bring glory to God on the day of judgment when He judges you rightly for all of your sin? He will be glorified. The world wants every person in this room to, today to believe that that is not true. That we can be against Christ and it's not a dangerous thing. That it's not a big deal. That we can look at the law of the Lord and we can say, who cares? We have grace. You do realize that the obedience of Christ to the law purchased that grace. I think Jonathan Edwards said it rightly uh, about our glorifying God and, and that being the intentions of why we were created in his treatise, the end for which God created the world. If you ever want something that will help you get to sleep at night, you read that. It's absolutely fantastic, but it's a little lengthy. And he writes there, the creator is infinite. This means he has all possible existence, perfections, and excellence. This means he must also have all possible honor and respect. In every way, God is first and supreme. His excellent qualities are the supreme beauty and glory, the original good, and the fountain of all good. This, of course, means that he must in every way have the highest regard and honor. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you believe this morning that the world, as John is defining it, agrees with Jonathan Edwards? And the answer is no. The world rejects this idea. The world believes that we can be even agnostic and impartial and say, well, we really don't know. The world wants us ultimately to stop giving glory to God for the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the problem in independent fundamentalism. 
And I'm just being real with you this morning. The issue in our circles is that we reduce the world to mean dirty movies, smoking, and drinking. Trash that's found on the internet, maybe. A list of bad things that we're told not to do. But friends, can I tell you something? The world can be alive and at well in the life of any church. The world system can creep in to the church at any moment. Friends, do you know what often makes the commandments of God burdensome, even to, in, in some peripheral sense to a believer? It's people who are pious gas bags misquoting and misapplying the commandments and imperatives of God. It's some people who think that they can, that it's kind of like they come to the law of God and they go, man, that's just not enough. And you know what it means to come to the law of God and say the law of God is not enough? It's that you don't understand how high and how majestic the law of God really is and how sinful you are. Because when we really come to rightly relate to the law, we realize, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a miserable sinner. There is no way that I can earn salvation in my own strength. The world is everything that stands between us and glorifying God. And friends, that can happen in the church. It happens all the time when worldly wisdom creeps into the pulpit. When men stand up again to speak in the name of God, but speak not the Word of God. When we come in and we, we let all of the psychological fads of our day reign preeminent in a service where the Word of the Lord should be heralded. Or worldly religion. Where people just agree, well, we need to do all of these outward things and then we're good with, with God. That's nothing more than worldliness. Worldly, uh, worldly worship creeps into the church. World system seeks to persecute the church, to rob her of, of her freedom and ability to actually express worship. That happens all over the world. And we as Christians in America who have the freedom to worship rightly should continually pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe who are persecuted. And not necessarily just that their circumstance would change, but that they would be faithful in that circumstance. That the world would not overcome them, but they would continue in the good confession of the faith. And holding on to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the world wants to stomp all of that out. So, so the world's not just out there. It's also in here. There's this error that pops up in the church and in many families where we think if we just isolate ourselves from society, we will be safe and we will have a good relationship with God. The problem is, Sarah, you and I have brought five little sinners into our home. And they drag the world right in with them. And they drag in. And friends, here's the reality. We who are in Christ still have some of the principles of the world working in our thinking. There's a world that resides in us. Paul writes in Romans, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Again, this idea, this reality that we are saved and set apart from the world when God by grace alone brings us to salvation. But friends, we still have to deal with the manifestations in this life that seemingly tug and pull at us. And they can be really broken down into two major categories, and I I can't explain all of what the world system means in its granular details, but here are two things to think about. One is the whole idea of self and promoting self above everything else. And you know what That, that really lands in in our lives when we live our lives for self? It lands first in pride, doesn't it? Pride over our physical appearance, over our intellect, over our position, our possessions, our success, our wealth, our spiritual reputation. That kind of worldliness is alive in the church and we constantly have to push against it. A self-made man worships his Creator. Doesn't that creep into the church? Haven't you met people who say that they follow Jesus and yet I'm a self-made man, I did it all myself. Are you kidding You can't even take the next breath without Jesus. That worldliness creeps into all of our thinking. And friends, here's the reality. Some of of you think that I showed up 10 years ago in San Angelo, Texas to throw a theological fit and pick a fight. But I didn't. What happened was, God called a young man who was stupid enough to just take God at His word. And the Bible tells us plainly in Scripture, we are not the captain of our faith. We are not the masters of our own souls. It is God's providence and kindness and His work alone that brings us to salvation. But the world wants your kids to believe. Believe in a Jesus if you want to. Just don't believe in the one that really saves from beginning to end. The world creeps in. The world says, okay, have a gospel. Let us just add some things to it. You can be in charge of whether or not you have been redeemed. And friends, that is a lie. It's self-centered. We also see ambition and selfishness. Drives me nuts to drive by churches when the pastor's name's bigger than the name of the church. (laughs) I remember one kind deacon early in my pastorate here lovingly telling me that I had to let the, 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 I had to let the church put my name in the classified ad in the paper so that people in our community would know that they had a pastor because I refused for my name to be put on anything else because I could die and I don't want you all to have to pay to put another name up. It's nonsense. Christ is preeminent in his church, not Jay. And then there's also in this reality of the world creeping in the flesh, our appetites, our lusts, our desires. And if you say, I don't struggle with any of that, then you're a liar. Because we all struggle as fallen human beings in our flesh, even after salvation, against the things of the flesh. It's why the apostles wrote to the church warning them of these things. And Paul, specifically in Galatians chapter 5, listened to these things that he admonishes the first church. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, 
to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, that, that's an interesting statement and phrase in its own right. It, we're, we're not coming to the law for salvation. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. I promise you, rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy, that has to have been written to the Baptist church. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are not believing, saved, born-again people. Our flesh wars against us. So it's not just the world out there. It's the world that we have to wage war against in our own flesh and with our own selves. We also have the reality of laziness in the church today. You know why the church is weak? It's not because the Supreme Court makes decisions to undermine our spiritual liberty. It's because every week we make decisions not to immerse ourselves in the Word of God and have communion with God through prayer. Quit blaming the state of the church today on everything out there. We become lazy. And I'm in, the, I, I'm in it with you. I'm not here just to dog on you or to beat you over the head or to add to the law, but friends, we have to wage war in overcoming these things in the world, in our own lives. I think if we really want an understanding of what it means to live as Christians, and a great study is the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And what the world seeks to do. Now think about that. That is the way we are happy. We are joyful. We have fellowship with God when we live in those ways when we are poor in spirit and the world will come to us and say come on don't be poor in spirit look at how great you are look at how awesome you are God just thinks that that you're fantastic in and of yourself the world doesn't want you to bring glory in being humble before the Lord or blessed are those who mourn do you know how irritating it is to the world for a Christian to mourn over their own sin For us to, 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 to constantly wrestle with the realities that we fall far short of His glory and that's not a small thing. To desire to be more like Christ. To, to live in a way that really would bring Him glory where we're marked as being something other than the world. Blessed are those who mourn. But the world's going to come and say, listen, don't be hard on yourself. Everyone sins. It's not that big of a deal. That's, that's what the world does. That's the, how the world speaks. And the world ultimately promises that it will give you everything that you need to be joyful. The problem is, is none of those promises ever deliver. And that's the whole thrust of 1 John. John is telling us, look, all of the promises of the world are going to come to nothing. If you want to have joy in this life, in this world, and in the one to come, the only joy that you will ever have is found in relationship with Almighty God. 
and listen just quickly to the things that we inherit as we live the Christian life, overcoming the world. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is following every beatitude. We will be comforted. We will inherit the earth. We will be satisfied. We will have mercy. We will see God. We will be called the sons of God. And we will have the kingdom of heaven. Shouldn't that cause us to have joy? And to say, yes, I want to fight against my pride. Yes, I want to to live in a way that is well-pleasing to the Lord. Well, the only way that we're really going to do that is in the power of the Spirit and seeking to understand how God would have us live. And the way that we understand that is by coming to His Word and the imperatives that He gives us throughout His Word. So again, Christians come to the Word of God and they don't find it burdensome. Because Christ has completed the law, what they find is that the law of God is true and right and just. It's almost as if somebody kind of pauses at this point and asks John the question, okay, well, if, if the world finds the commands of God burdensome, is there anything that the Christian finds to be toilsome and burdensome? And the answer is yes. The world. We find, if we are truly walking in the Spirit, the things of the world to bring us to a point of having a burden. And I don't mean a burden in the way that the world has overcome us. I mean a burden in the way that we look out upon the world and we see the way the world system works. Friends, this morning, do you have a burden of the reality that millions of women think that it's morally okay to slaughter their children in the womb? Doesn't that cause you to grieve in your spirit? Are you okay with the reality that even if we solve that problem, there's another problem of fathers abrogating their responsibility to lead their children in the love and admonition of the Lord? That that children will go home from school and they will come home not to parents who love them and want to lead them to their Creator, but they will come home to parents who are strung out on all kinds of, uh, of substances seeking to dull the, their own pain. The world, as we look out upon it, as Christians, we don't look out upon it and go, man, they're all messed up. I wish they would be more like me. We look out upon the world and we go, but for the grace of God, that's where we were. And we are going to wage war against this worldly system, against pride, uh, against the foolish systems that are opposed to to the heralding of the glory of God in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ. We're going to come and speak the words of God in the name of God, and we're going to watch God work. Our burden is ultimately not Thinking that we have to live up to the law so that we can have salvation. Our burden is knowing we've been given salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And the world doesn't have that. But we want them to. We want them to bring glory to God. A Christian looks out upon the world and sees that the world is in the power of the evil one. And so what can we do? 
Well, let's start a political movement. Let's start an organization. You know, friends, I just believe this is what we should do. We should stand in the name of God and speak the words of God. Because the church of God is sufficient for this generation. And we should genuinely care about theology. Now, if you struggle with that, I pray for you. We should genuinely care about understanding who God is rightly according to what He has said, not according to what the TV turkey says on 9 a.m. on Sunday. We should genuinely care about our Christian brothers and sisters. We should seek with everything in ourselves to live at peace inside the body of Christ. We should seek to obey the commandments of God, not for our salvation, but for God's glory because we've been given the power of sin not having either the penalty over our lives or the power over our lives. We've been set free in Christ. But here's the reality. I think the ESV has knocked it out of the park in the translation of what we really need to hear this morning. Commandments are not grievous to us. Commandments are are grievous to the world, and the world is a burden to us. The ESV goes on to say, in, in, in a right translation, and this is the victory. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That not overcometh, that it will overcome. The right translation is the victory is already ours in Christ. We have overcome the world through faith in Jesus Christ. So when we come to the law not being burdensome, John doesn't linger there long before he goes straight to the Gospel and says, but the way we overcome this present world is not to whip out our list of Deuteronomy and see if we're measuring up. It's to run to Christ in repentance and faith and to cling to Him and Him alone. It's to realize that we have been given the victory. Now here's the question. If we've been given the victory over the world, why is it that so many Christians this morning, if the world is over here, then the Christian in the modern age says, well, I will camp and live. I'd stand on this, but I think I'd fall flat on my face. I will live right here. I want to be as close to the world and in the things of the world and I want to have my hands in all of that. Friends, that's not what Christians do. We want to live as close to the kingdom as possible. As close to Christ as possible. We want to know Him and we want to make Him known. Because the world was overcome not in our strength and effort to try and obey the law. The world has been overcome through the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not trying to win the war. The war has already been won. The question then is, we are simply trying to win the battles in our daily lives. How do we do it? Is it by living up to the law? And the answer is no. It's by the Gospel. And that's what verse 5 is. A distillation of the Gospel. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you want a picture of that in biblical terms, you can go to Matthew chapter 16 and you will, you will, you will um, remember this narrative. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And He said 
And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed art you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you... You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And whoever and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Blessed are you if you can see that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and you rest in Him and in Him alone, knowing that He is the one who has accomplished the victory. He has given you the keys to the kingdom. Friends, I think a helpful way to think about this in closing is it's almost as if these two kingdoms are divided by a road or maybe a high fence. And by God's kindness, He reached over the fence into the, the kingdom of darkness and He, by sovereign mercy alone, snatched us out of that kingdom and He placed us into His own doesn't mean we can't still see the the old kingdom. And it doesn't mean that we don't still smell of the smoke. That we don't still have some of that kingdom on us. We need to be honest and humble before the Lord and say, God, I thank You that I am no longer in the kingdom of darkness. Help me to walk in the light. Help me to overcome the individual battles in my life knowing that you have overcome the world. Help me to live in light of your law, not in light of the burdens that the world puts on me as I seek to honor you according to your word. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you this morning so thankful that you have loved us enough to give us your only Son that as we are born again and regenerated and we can see the loveliness of Christ and we rest in Him and in Him alone, have salvation. Father, we're so thankful that You've not left us in this world wondering, well then how should we then live? But You've given us Your Word. Father, might we be students of it. Might we live in such a way that we don't fall into lawlessness or legalism. But we seek to bring You glory. Father, might You work in the hearts and lives of each member of this congregation that our minds would be transformed and renewed in the power of the Spirit. And we wouldn't hold on to theology or belief out of just arrogance and pride, but that we would seek to submit our minds to You. Father, might we glorify You in the way that we love one another and the way that we seek to subject our lives to 